thing that we see in each of those times is God coming near and working in his life to continue to bless him. That's God's uh, promise to Abram, that he's going to bless him so that he can be a blessing. Is this working? Everybody, don't look over there. <laughs> they don't want you to do that. God's intention in the lives of his people is to bless them so that they then are a blessing to other people. Everybody wants to be blessed. That sounds like a great thing, but very few people realize that if you want to be blessed, you're going to have to be ready for how God's blessing actually changes your life. Because when God blesses your life, it creates tension. It's not necessarily a bad tension, but things are no longer the same way that they were once God blesses you. They don't fit in your life nearly like they used to. Life doesn't feel the same. That feeling can be a little uncomfortable. Let me use a uh, an illustration here, thank you guys, of what that means in the life of a church. When God blesses a church, what does it mean? It means that people start to develop a hunger for him, a desire to be with him a little bit more, and they start to experience him. They experience him in worship services, but they also experience him on a daily basis. And as they experience him, their heart grows closer to God's heart, and they start to take on the same kind of things that God's passionate for, one of which is that other people would come to also have those same experiences with God. And so when God blesses a church, what happens? You see that growth start to take place. It takes place inside each one of us as the knowledge of God increases, but you also see it spread further and start to get larger. But along with that growth, comes of some discomfort. You understand that as you grow up, you get growing pains. As a church grows, it also gets growing pains. You can start at a trivial le level. You realize that it's not as easy to find a seat on Sunday morning, that the aisles are a little bit more packed tightly, that we have people sitting next to the refrigerators in the back who can't hear as well, that you actually have to listen to the ushers as they are trying to help you find your seat. It's uncomfortable. Or you look around and you say, wow, there's so many of us now that it, we can't know each other to the same level that we used to. We start to realize we can't do everything all together like a small church can. You start to struggle. What, what, what is our identity? Why are we all here together? These are the kinds of things that I hear us at Renewal talking about when I have lunch or dinner with people. Now, why are these things uncomfortable? It's the direct result of God blessing us and God growing us. And you realize that that is just a normal part of what God does in his church. We talked about the parable of the mustard seed earlier this summer, and we recognize there that what God does in his kingdom is he starts small, starts small inside of you, starts small inside of us, and then he causes his kingdom to grow. And it grows in such a way that it then provides shelter for the people around. But that also means then that we have to adjust to that growth. We have to adjust to it personally, we have to adjust to it corporately. And again, this is just normal life in the church. You can go back to the very beginning of the church in the book of Acts and realize that that's what happened there. How did the church start? It started with a small group of apostles and disciples around, probably not much bigger than a small church. And God in one day pours his spirit out on them and they proclaim his glories to the people around them. And what happens? 3,000 people enter into the church. That creates a certain amount of discomfort, an amount of growing pains. And how do we now serve and care for all of these 3,000 people? But it's not 3,000 homogenous people. Ethnically, they're all Jewish. But these are people that have come from all the surrounding nations. This is now an international gathering. 
It takes a while through the book of Acts for people to start figuring out how actually to blend all of that together. And just about the time that they have figured out how to make that blend work, God does something really bizarre. He adds the Gentiles in. And now no one's comfortable. The Gentiles are not comfortable. The Jewish people are not comfortable. And God says, this is great. This is what I do. When he blesses his church, it produces a certain amount of discomfort. And that's what you heard taking place back in Genesis 13 as Luke was reading the chapter. There's a certain amount of discomfort, and that discomfort causes God's people to have to act to resolve it. Let me give you a little bit of background to this portion. We didn't read the end of chapter 12. Let me urge you, go home, read the end of chapter 12. Very powerful chapter. Okay, the first half of chapter 12, God has blessed. Abram says, I'm going to keep blessing you. And what happens in the last half of chapter 12? Abram is now suffering. And you realize that the blessing of God does not take away suffering. But what happens there with Abram is that he makes multiple bad decisions. There's this famine where he was staying. Instead of relying on the Lord, like he does in that first half of the chapter, instead of worshiping the Lord, seeking his guidance, Abram moves his family off to Egypt, takes them out of the land that God had promised, and it was a decision that nearly cost him his wife. And yet, in that passage, what do you see? You see God being incredibly gracious to him, reunites him with Sarai, and they have now returned back to where they had been living in Canaan. But along the way, God's been blessing, and so they have returned with more flocks and more herds than they had initially. And you start to read what that's like in chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, skipping down to verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. God has done what he said he was going to do. He's blessed Abram. Apparently, he's also blessed Lot. But that blessing now means that they cannot function in the same kind of ways that they used to. There's tension between them. The Negev, it's, it's this semi-arid kind of place. It doesn't get a lot of rain during the year, so it doesn't cause a lot of vegetation to grow, kind of a scrubby land. And there's not enough to support all of their flocks. So now there's strife between the herdsmen. And that means that there's got to be some change somewhere in some way because things can't keep going as they are. God's gr blessing brings growth. Growth requires change. And when you get on board with God's agenda, when I get on board with God's agenda, both personally and corporately, you realize that you're going to have to get ready to be uncomfortable. And you have to be ready then to respond to that discomfort. Now, there's two ways that you see in this passage of how to respond. First, you'll see Lot respond, and you're also going to see Abram respond. Lot's response, the way he handles this tension, has a lot of problems with it that you see as you go through it. Lot's journeyed with his uncle Abram. He's come all the way from Ur of the Chaldeans. He had initially joined himself to this community, this community that God has said he's going to bless. But when given a choice now, some years later, that community doesn't hold quite as much appeal to him as it used to. So verse 8 we read, Abram coming to Lot saying, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And this is an amazing offer. 
Abram is the family patriarch. He's not the one who has to take second best. He's the one who decides what is best for everybody else. Not only is he the family patriarch, he's also the one that God speaks to. He's the one who's been given all of the promises. So Abram really is the one who should be dictating the terms here, not offering options. He should be taking first choice, not accepting the leftovers. Instead, he takes the low road, comes to Lot, initiates, and he says, we have a problem. So what do you want? What, you, you can have anything you like. It's all been given to me. I can do with it whatever I want. I'd like to bless you. What would you like? And this is one of the first moments where Lot really misses it, because this is the moment where Lot needs to step up to declare his commitment to this God of blessing, to dedicate himself to God's purposes being accomplished on this earth, regardless of whatever that costs him. It's the moment when he should look at Abram and say something like, our herdsmen should never have quarreled, because you and I really are on the same page. We're both totally invested in what God's doing in this earth, and so our people also need to be invested. I'm going to go talk to my guys. I'll sort this out, because they have to stop thinking in terms of mine and yours. They have to learn how to think about ours. And I'll take responsibility to shepherd them so that we're no longer having this kind of strife. Or, second option, you could have said to Abram, yeah, I don't really want to separate. Is there someplace else we could go? Could we wander around and look at maybe there's another place that could actually keep both of us sustaining everything that we have? Or if that's not possible, then it's time to defer to Abram and say, that was incredible. I can't believe you just offered that. But respectfully, it's your choice. You take first, and then I'll take whatever you think best. Or it's an opportunity for him to grow up and to make some big boy decisions here and learn how to put someone else's interests above his own. It's an opportunity to evaluate what this is like for Abram and to recognize that Abram is the one who holds the promises of salvation and restoration for all of humanity, and that this would just be a tremendous opportunity to actually serve him and to think, okay, what is it that Abram actually needs most? And how can I look around, decide what I think is going to be best for him, suggest he take that, and then I will take whatever is left? Lot doesn't do any of that. Instead, verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes, and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Lot looked around, decided what he thought was actually the best land, and took it for himself. And if you've been reading carefully from chapter 11 up to this point in chapter 13, you're not really surprised because apparently there's been some distance that's been growing between Lot and Abram, some underlying tension. For instance, when they start out in Ur, Lot is highly placed in the narrative. We're told in chapter 11, verse 31, that Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, and then it lists all these other people that they also took. Lot gets top billing. He comes right after Abram, comes even before Abram's wife. But a little later in the story, chapter 12, verse 5, we learn that Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son. And what you were just presented is one of these classic Old Testament ways of giving you a hint as to how to interpret this passage. Old Testament commentary is very subtle. 
and it gives you just these little bits and pieces that says this is how you should understand this narrative. So what are you seeing here? You're seeing that Lot's place in the community has slipped. It's not a horrendous slip yet. We're not yet to the place where strife is coming between the herdsmen. But this is one of those indicators that Lot and Abram are not exactly on the same page any longer. That awareness only deepens as you read on. You re learn about Abram's tr trip to Egypt. Sarah is mentioned several times in chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. Lot isn't mentioned even once. But chapter 13 makes clear that he actually did go down to Egypt. He's coming back with his uncle, but there's no mention of him. The real clincher, however, comes in chapter 13, verse 1, when we read that Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him. And you realize Lot's really fallen to the back here. He's only counted after Abram's possessions, after the flocks, after the herds, after the silver, after the gold. Here's Lot, barely hanging on to the edges of the community of the people of God. And so it's really no surprise that he parts ways from Abram because it looks like he's been separating himself for some time now. And that's actually dangerous. That loss of connection is going to lead to him making really bad choices for himself and his family. Because as he's looking out across the land, he's about to see something and he's going to interpret that something, but he's going to interpret it through the lens of his own desires, not through the lens of what God is doing on this earth. He's going to act on his distorted interpretation in part because he's turned his back on the community of God's people. He's not in step with what God is doing, and he's not in step with the people through whom God's doing it. So you ask, okay, well, what is it that he sees as he looks around on his own? And I think equally important, what is it that he doesn't see? He looks and he sees down below what looks like the garden of the Lord. Clearly, that's a reference back to the Garden of Eden. Lot is standing here, get the picture, he's standing in this semi-arid wilderness, coming back from Egypt once more into this land where there had just been a famine, and he's looking at this lush garden down in front of him, and he says, oh man, jackpot, look at this. I found the answer to all my dreams. I have found the Garden of the Lord. I have found paradise. I, I found heaven here on earth, and Lot wants it. You can imagine what the kind of promises are that, it, that it's giving to him. He, 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 it promises an end to ever being hungry again. Promises an end to the barrenness that his flocks are dealing with. It promises an end to the strife. He no longer has that close connection with the people of God. It's not as much of a draw on him any longer. He sees something in front of him that looks so much better. And he says, this is what I want. I would rather have this than the discomfort of being with God's people. So he decides to go for it. That's what he sees, and he goes for it. Here's what he doesn't see. Verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, and Lot missed that. Or at the very least, he missed the implications of what it would be like to actually live among those people. He had a little hint back in verse 10 that this was not going to be a good decision, that as Lot's looking down here, the author tells you that this is the place that God's going to destroy. It's going to destroy in less than 25 years from now. And here we're learning why. It's because the people there are wicked. And that doesn't matter to Lot. 
He pitched his tents outside the city. He became the next-door neighbor to wickedness. And actually, if you read in chapter 14, verse 12, he's not content to stay outside the city of wickedness. He actually moves inside. He becomes a citizen there. Lot has traded the community of the blessed for the community of the wicked. And here's the frightening thing. He thought this was a great deal. It was a good trade. And you think, how does that happen? How, how, how can you think like that? Well, there's two elements here that you see. Number one, he wrongly assessed his needs. And number two, he wrongly assumed nothing bad would happen to him. He wrongly assessed his needs. He, he thought that his physical needs were more important than his spiritual ones. And so he chooses paradise on earth with wicked company over staying in a place of struggle with godly company. He's not thinking clearly about what his real need is. He's not thinking that his spiritual needs always outweigh his physical ones, that you never get healthy spiritually by making morally questionable decisions. Compromise never leads to holiness. He wrongly assessed his needs. And secondly, he wrongly assumes nothing bad's going to happen, that once he gets what he wants, life's just going to be great. And he doesn't think about what actually happens in chapter 14, that there are other kings who come and they capture the city of Sodom. They take all of the people, including Lot, with his possessions captive. He doesn't think about how Abram's going to have to come and rescue him. He doesn't think about chapter 19, where his decision's actually going to ruin his family, where his wife is going to become materialistic and die young, where his daughters will become immoral. And he certainly didn't think to himself... You know, God might have a different take on this place than I do. He might think it's hell on earth, not heaven. He might be so sickened by it that he'll destroy it, and if I move there, I'll end up with nothing. And you know that he doesn't think that. You know he's not thinking, how can I ruin and destroy my family? If he had those thoughts, he'd have kept his distance from this place, regardless of how good it looked. But Lot doesn't keep his distance, he moves closer. And here you start to see the connection between personal maturity and godly community. You need godly people in your life. You can say it really strongly. You have to have godly people in your life. Why? Because you are not always going to see things clearly on your own. You're not always going to think wisely about what you see. Your wants, your desires are going to get in the way. They're going to cloud your mind. And in that moment, what do you need? You need wise brothers and wise sisters to surround you. Wise people who can help you understand your world, help you figure out how to actually go about living in it. And you're never going to outgrow that need. You will mature spiritually as you walk with the Lord. But that maturity doesn't mean that the temptations to sin disappear. What do temptations do? They go underground. They become more subtle. You're not tempted as much by those gross kind of sins, the things that you can see coming from a mile away. What are you tempted by? You're tempted by these sneaky desires, these longings that come in, and they, they gently tug at your heart because they just don't seem all that bad. And these are the ones that wind up grabbing you if you're out there on your own trying to live a life of faith by yourself. Think about what's happening here again with Lot. Is it a bad thing to want to have enough pasture to sustain your flocks and herds? It doesn't sound like a bad thing, right? 
So can you imagine then what that little voice, that sneaky voice says inside of you? How, can you imagine what it would sound like? How it would try to justify this really awful decision? How it would come and say, well, what are these flocks and herds? These are blessings, right? These are God's blessings, and, and God gave them to you, right? He, he wouldn't, want you to, wouldn't want you to let them starve to death. It's not good stewardship. You have to take care of what God gives you. Look over here. See, see this vegetation over here? If you move there, you will never have another worry in your life. You will have heaven on earth. And that's the moment when you need to have another voice come alongside of you, when you need to hear a different voice, a voice that says maybe there's another question that you really should be asking. Maybe you should be asking, not is my desire a bad one? Maybe you should be asking, has my desire to feed my flocks gotten out of hand? Has my desire led me down the path of no longer loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, down the path of no longer loving my neighbor as myself? And if the answer is, if your desire leads you away from righteous people and it leads you toward wicked people, if it leads you to this place where you no longer care about the impact of what you're doing, if it leaves you anxious and frustrated and lashing out at other people and blaming everybody else for why things are not the way that you want them to be in your own life, then yes, it's become a bad desire. It's captured your heart. You really need to take that seriously in that moment. Because why? It's become paradise to you. A return to the Garden of Eden. And you become consumed with this idea that if I can only have this thing, then my life will be good. And you need godly voices then to enter into your world when you are consumed with that, when you're tempted. Because temptation takes good things, like food for flocks, and it turns them into your version of paradise. You wind up making bad decisions because you want it so badly. And that's why this passage is here. It's really easy to read this passage and think to yourself, you know what, I, I would never do anything like that. I've been tempted, I've given in to temptation, but I've never done anything that bad, and, and, and I would never lose my mind that badly. If that's what's going through your mind right now, you need to be very careful. Do you think that Lot planned all this out when he was back in Ur? Do you think for one moment that he decided to make a string of really bad decisions? that would end up ruining his life, being captured by an army, losing all his possessions, watching his family become immoral. He had no inkling of that future. What do we call that? We say he's, he was deceived. He was deceived, he was deceiving himself. He's pretending that these small bad choices just won't add up. That's not a big deal to, to let his connections with God's people become you know, a, a little distant. It's not a big deal to give himself little comfort in this world. world's hard. It's full of tensions, full of discomfort. I'm just going to take a little comfort here. It's not that big a deal. It's deception when you allow yourself to believe that. book of Hebrews has a very sobering passage, chapter 3, verse 12. It's a frightening passage, actually. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And just pause there and let some of those words sink in. Brothers, those who have pursued Christ, those who have wanted to live a godly life, those who have the Holy Spirit, brothers, in you, an evil, unbelieving heart. 
you realize, wow, th this is not beyond any of us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see what sin does? It's deceitful. It lodges inside your heart. It leads you to fall away from God. But the way that it does that is by coming to you and make you think that you're actually doing the right things. That, that, to, to think that what you're pursuing is good when it isn't. And you only wake up later and find yourself far from him and you discover that this heaven on earth has actually become hellish. It's a frightening warning because it's not written to unbelievers, it's written to believers. You and I can do this. But there's a gracious part in that passage too because there's a remedy for being deceived. You don't have to fall into being deceived. What's the remedy here? It's other people who speak into your life, exhorting one another. Just notice how often you're, we're supposed to be exhorting one another. It's not once a week. It's not here on Sunday. It's every day. You go through Scripture, you find other remedies for sin. God obviously speaks to us through the Scripture. He speaks to us through His Spirit. We commune with him in prayer. In this passage, none of those are there. What is God's remedy for the deceitfulness of sin in this passage? It's his people. And it's his people stepping into each other's worlds, giving each other the God's perspective. It's the one thing that Lot decided he didn't need. It is what could have prevented the misery that he brought down on himself. And so as you study Lot, you realize here's the unfaithful way to handle the tension, the discomfort that God's blessing brings. What's the faithful way? Well, obviously, let's look at Abram here. And again, hang on to the background from chapter 12. Abram left the land that God promised to give him because of a famine. What does that mean? It means that he was afraid to die. Now, if you recall, one of God's blessings to Abram was that you're going to be a great nation. Well, if you're afraid that you're going to die and God can't make a great nation out of dead people, then, then, then you're actually not believing the promises right now. Abram's move to Egypt was faithless. And that's underlined as you read chapter 12, and, and there is no worship, there's no altars, there's no calling on the name of the Lord in that last half. But that's not the end of the story for Abram. What does he do with that? He comes back to the land where God has promised that he will inherit. And as he's back, he reconnects with God. Chapter 13, verse 3. After returning from Egypt, Abram journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So in Egypt, God is no longer in the picture. We're not told exactly what Abram's interactions were with the Lord, but we're told that there really weren't any. He realizes that mistake, comes back and reconnects with God and calls upon God's name. And immediately, what do you see? You see him then living out his faith. You see him being open-handed, generous with Lot. You see him taking second place. And you recognize, what is he doing? He's practicing his faith now. If he's going to be a blessing to all the nations, he's taking these little baby steps to bless Lot. See, when you know that you have God's blessing, you don't have to guard your own back. You don't have to live like Lot thinking that you have to take care of all of your possessions. Instead, it allows you to be open-handed and gracious. 
It allows you to look at other people. It allows you, like Abram says in verse 8, we're kinsmen. And therefore, I want to bless you, even though we've not been acting like kinsmen. And as Abram gives away, you realize how much more he gets. Lot heads off, and Abram's just sort of standing there in the scrubland, looking around, and God speaks to him. Verse 14, he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And God is coming to Abram saying, I make up for what you think you lose when you serve me. He renews the promise to Abram. He's saying, I'm really giving all this country to you. You haven't lost anything by giving it away. He comes back and he elaborates on the promise. He says, you're going to have so many descendants. <laughs> it's going to outnumber the dust on the earth. And he tells him, based on those promises, here's now how you need to live. Arise. Get up. Don't stay here where it's tempting to think of all the things that you don't have. Don't spend time thinking about the things that you've given away. Stand up. You don't want to go down roads of regret and roads of, that, that generate bitterness. Arise. But don't just stand up. Do something. Act on the promises that I've given you. Walk through the land. Embrace what I've given to you. Life's not static. It's not about an arrival. It's not a destination. Lot thinks it's a destination. That's why he moves and then he settles. It's actually a pilgrimage. God's people are constantly asking, where's God? What is God doing? How can I be in step with him? How can I be where he is? How can I be doing the same kinds of things that he's doing? In other words, the good life does not come because you got everything that you ever wanted. The good life comes from embracing God's will, even when things are uncomfortable, even when people don't treat you like they should. And that's all wonderful. But there's something that's even more special there. Don't miss this. Lot just left, and immediately God talks to him. Lot leaves, God comes near. He no longer has the community relationship with his nephew. He's got a different community now. He's got the community of God. He's got a divine community. God moves forward toward his people to make up for what they lose as they serve him. And here's my fear this morning with this piece of the passage. If you haven't experienced God coming to you in those moments, or if you haven't experienced him very deeply in those moments, or if you haven't experienced him lately, my fear is that this is just going to fall flat for you. And it's not going to have the grab that it really is supposed to have. My fear is that you're going to think something like, okay, that sounds nice. But honestly, Bill, it sounds a little weak. I mean, okay, I get God, but what good is that? What good is it if God loves me, but my children don't? What good is it if God comes near, but my spouse pushes me away? Or young people, what good is it to have God talk to me when my parents won't make time to listen to me? What good is it if God is my friend, but nobody ever asks me out on a date? 
What good is it to have God when he doesn't measure up to my idea of heaven on earth? And if you're tempted to ask those questions, what are you saying? You're saying you haven't experienced God. You haven't experienced him very deeply. You haven't experienced him lately. You can't imagine then how much better he is than what you think heaven on earth would be. So how do you get this experience? There is no secret. It doesn't happen immediately. There's no shortcut. You actually have to live out your faith. You have to act. You have to arise. You have to walk based on what God's told you to do. And part of the way that you do that is in community with other people who are also living out their faith. How do you press against those voices in your head that will paint pictures of paradise for you? Pictures that you've bought into, that, that you want. How do you press against that? You have to have other voices, other people speaking to you that lay out different pictures. And as you hear those other pictures, you start to go, wow, that, that actually sounds attractive. You start to experience that other picture. You go, this is much better than what I would have chosen for myself. How do you embrace a life of pilgrimage? of living by faith when life is not what you wanted it to be. You hear stories from other people who share their experience of what it looks like to live by faith when their life is not what they want it to be. In other words, you cannot get this in a 30-minute sermon. Can't get it in a 35-minute sermon. This happens in community with other people over time. It happens in a community that embraces a life that does not demand heaven on earth now but a community that's growing together, that's looking for what God is doing on this earth and joining themselves to it. And that's why community groups are so important for us. That is where we actually grow together as a church. That's where we are able to take the blessing that God is giving and start to make wise choices with the discomfort and start to actually move forward. So I want to urge you, just like Pastor Luke did earlier, community groups have just started up now. It's very easy to jump into one. Being on your own is, is a bad idea. Being on your own is a terrible idea. It's not good for you. It's not good for us because we need you to grow with us and we need you in order for us to grow. So if you haven't been to a community group but you're on that email list, respond and go to community group. Get involved, be part. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come see me afterwards. See Pastor Luke, see one of our elders so we can connect you. And if you are part of a community group and you are thinking about that one person who seems to have been drifting for a while, gently pursue them, invite them, because this is where they really need to be. I wanna make sure that we're all growing together, that we're moving toward a real heaven, not toward all of these fake heavens that we've built for ourselves. But what if you've already blown it? What if instead of following Abram on his faith pilgrimage, you've already followed Lot? You've isolated yourself, you've made bad decisions, they're starting to affect you, they're affecting the people around you. What hope do you have that God would want you back? It's the same hope that Abram had. And just like Abram, you have to come to an altar. You realize this passage is bracketed with altars. Verse four, Godliness starts for Abram because he comes back and calls on the name of the Lord. He ends the passage by coming to an altar. But you're going to need a different kind. You can't go to an altar that you build for yourself. You have to go to the altar that God builds for you. 
And that's where you realize that Abram is not first and foremost an example of faith for you. He is an example, but he's not first and foremost an example. He's not this external example that sets a really high bar and now you're supposed to somehow get up and over the bar. Instead, first and foremost, Abram is a pointer. He's pointing to the true man of faith, the one who would come later. Abram is telling us about Jesus who would come. Jesus, who would not demand his rights, did not demand his privileges, but who would lay those rights and privileges down in order to serve, and serve people who make bad choices, to serve you, to serve me. Jesus would live a life of pilgrimage. He would embrace God's call and the discomfort that that call brought to him because he was focused on these countless descendants that the Father had promised him. And he was focused not simply on them, he's focused on that future land where they would be, the real paradise. And because of that, he was able to reject every temptation to carve out a paradise for himself on earth. He was content to have God's friendship, even though he had little else. And he rejected that desire to create a paradise for himself because he didn't want a paradise for himself. He wanted a paradise that was filled to overflowing with countless people of faith. And he wanted that future regardless of what it cost him. That's what we remember when we see the Lord's Supper. We remember the life that he lived. We remember the cost that, it, that he was willing to pay for us. But it's more than just a remembrance. It's also an opportunity to actually connect with him. There's nothing special about the, the bread and the cup. But it's an opportunity to reach out by faith and say, Jesus, that's what I want. I want to experience you. So I'm going to invite us now to spend a few moments as we get ready before Pastor Luke comes, leads the Lord's Supper. Spend a few moments repenting. Repent of all those things where you thought this would really be heaven, even if it gets you away from God's people. And then spend time reaching out by faith saying, Jesus, I want you, and I want you more than I want anything else.